So the Eightfold Path clearly illustrates well, the practice is a whole life path covering attitude, perspectives, speech, physical actions, the way we live, uh, you know, as well as what you might call meditation, that area. There's no break, it's a it's integrated. Mm. This means by and large that we are encouraged to be working with conditions, speaking, acting, thinking, looking at livelihood, which I think means more than just making a living. It means our social relationships, our attitude towards requisites, whether we're lay people or monastics, uh, loyalties of um, familial or you know communal uh, connections, how we live, uh, relationship to the earth, animals, creatures, respect, how we organise a society. If we want to look at it in a really big term, how we fit in, how that works out. This has been the you know. The, um, what Buddhism has uh, worked with in Asia for 2,500 years with some successes and naturally some failures and some you know, mistakes and tangles and so forth. But it would have been a lot worse without it. <laughs> you just had barbarian warlords. <laughs> In some sense of moderating influence um, in society and still acts their way in Asia today to a degree which is capable of uh, holding a culture together and um, uplifting certain core principles that are deeply held and deeply felt in each individual and not just law and order they are Virtues and values that you can sense in yourself. Justice, uh, uh, malleability, uh, gentleness of behaviour, clear speech, honesty. And you get a feeling for that. Uh, We're encouraged to stay with that sense. And what it brings up when the mind is clear, it's not frantic, it's not pressurised, it's not oppressed, not panicking. It's not oppressing others, not pushing other people around, not claiming for ourselves. Self-effacement is highly encouraged in this uh, Dhamma culture. Mm. So these are ways in which this path uh, emanates, radiates outward. Uh, And uh, clearly the Buddha himself, when he started teaching had this sense for the welfare of gods and humans uh, to give it and walk it and create customs and conventions that would manage it and handle it and moderate it. In brief, we work with conditions. It's not, there is the unconditioned, forget the conditioned. There's the unconditioned, skip over the condition. No, no, the sense is that the careful cultivation 
of the conditioned reality uh, both leads to the unconditioned and itself is an aspect of the unconditioned. It's an aspect of the unconditioned. We're not, we're not conditioned by, by impatience. We're not conditioned by praise. We're not conditioned by who gets to be on top. We're not conditioned by the attitude of forcing everybody else to be this. It's an unconditioned attitude of being truthful and carefully handling conditions without a time limit. It's not like, oh, well, I do this for two hours, then, you know, stop. It's an unconditioned uh, sensitivity in response to conditions. External, internal. And when they cease, they cease. When they subside, they subside. And surely every aspect of everyone's life has to be in order to really liberate from the clinging to conditions to get a sense of an unconditioned or less conditioned or at least free from the conditions of ill will and and panic and neurosis and agitation and greed the gross stuff and this is the essential duty uh, meditation um, for our welfare and welfare of others if I'm not cleaning my mind on a daily basis how am I going to affect others? How many people live their whole lives without cleaning their minds ever? <laughs> it's like, just imagine ever cleaning your teeth in your lifetime, what that would be like. <laughs> and yet people go for days, weeks, not cleaning anything, just more and more cosmetics. So this uh, requirement and a sense in which you never neglect that. Because you, know? you never know, you know, there might be things you haven't seen yet. Uh, they keep that there as a fundamental basis. And uh, working with conditions, is often it's about working with them, but also seeing what they evoke in us. Uh, fears or agitations or compulsions. And, oh yeah, that's that. Right. Something to be seen here. Something to be cultivated here. I'm still getting opinionated or irritated by this particular thing. Good, okay, seen it. How is that? And you take that into the crucible of your bhavana, your cultivation, and you work with it. And it's uh, where these terms, not most user-friendly terms, but vajisankara, kaya-sankara, jitta-sankara, verbal formation means the way we form concepts and the way we express ourselves is this handled carefully. Do we think clumsily, hastily, without careful review? Do we blurt? Do we blab? Do we gossip? Do we chit-chat? Do we rebuke? Are we harsh? Is that carefully managed? Why not? Why should it not be carefully managed? It affects everything. Speech is our most powerful production much more so than bodily action and the way you speak the way you think affects your mind and it goes both ways that sense of knowing hmm, pausing silence knowing how to check what's appropriate hmm. 
right time, right place. Sensitivity to what another one can take in, where they're at. Are they ready? How much is necessary? What's the correct way to express this? Piyavajya, kindly speech. So it means you have to work with the conditioned urge, the chitta-sankara, the conditioned heart urge, the volitional pressure to get this out, get this done, get it seen, you know. Make sure he gets it. Don't check in with where he's at, just lay it on him. (laughs) Or have it prepared before you you see the person, you've got the thing you're going to say, rather than negotiating contact. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Let's see if we can, you know, it's skill. And one works with that impatience that wants to just get your stuff out and load it and put it onto somebody else. So it's working with the citta sankara, cleaning it. Kaya sankara, the bodily formation bodily energy, almost a lost area in our techno world where you don't really need a body very much, just need a face and a video camera, <laughs> recorder. And that's called communication. It's very handy. <laughs> uh, uh, then we kind of live up in that area of our experience. Uh, uh, flat. And how disembodied our lives get, dealing with abstractions of time and place and possibility and yeah, all the planning that goes on. So really, you, know, you do that, you feel exhausted. Because there's been no regenerative energy coming from the body. And so, you know, we are in a way <laughs> a remnant. Of what was a human common human experience of being bodied. You know, you can imagine the time of the Buddha, forests walking around, no electricity daylight, keep your senses open, be alert, yeah, no calendar, no clock, no agenda, no signals, no, yeah, you really have to be alert in your own nervous system, tuning in, and that's where they learnt, and they learn about fear, and they learn about passion, and they learn about doubt, they learnt about obsession through feeling it in their body and through an upright body, breathing in, breathing out, clearing it, clearing it. And then it seems the body plays a very powerful, essential role in that. You won't go far in any meditation system without coming across mindfulness of body. And the teachings were given by a person in a body talking to other people. 
directly with the body language, the tonalities, the atmospheres. Now we can just zoom each other. And it's, yeah, it's very handy. It's kind of unreal. So, at, you know, meditation is always a time, and cultivation, I think, is also necessary to develop the bodily aspect. Of course, bodies get a bit of a bad review because they are somewhere a bit of a pain, you know. It's not your bladder poking you, your belly screaming for food, your <laughs> back wanting to lie down, your knees hurting, your bowels creaking. It's not something that's going to give you <laughs> poke. Within a few minutes, what a pain this thing is, you know. Whoever thought this, whoever people got delight out of these things, I don't know. <laughs> you know constant source of complaint <laughs> too hot, too cold. Uh, so, you'd understand why most of the summoner traditions were like, get out of this thing. <laughs> and it took a, someone like the Buddha to say, wait a minute. Yeah, but within this, somehow, within this, there is a channel through this tangle of sensations and, you know, metabolism and urges. There is something within this. It's actually rather beautiful. Breathing in, breathing out. And the effect of that and how the mind held in that, in that steady body, that body amongst the bodies, as it's termed. This is a body amongst the bodies that is breathing in and breathing out. The body that you sense when you're in that rather luminous, uh, um, suffusive quality to it, an energy body. And you can saturate the physical body with the effects of that. So the, the distress in it eases up. And the Buddha obviously is someone who could cultivate to a profound degree. And he's saying is it is it is it late days, he said this physical body is just like an old cart, you know, falling apart, just being strapped together by leather straps. It's only when I go into meditation that I can get to place where it stops, what he could do. And it's said in his, in his death process, he's actually on his deathbed, says his last words, and somebody's tracking, and look, he's going into the jhana, going to meditation right now, even with a body in that amount of sickness and pain and death, still able to enter, yeah, and leave in a fully integrated way, withdrawing that energy from the physical form as it passes away. But within this lifetime, very much keeping it there because this uh, bodily kaya-sankara is a very, a very good reading for what your heart-minded jitta is doing. Thinking mind justifies, distracts, wanders, um, all over the place you don't necessarily know. I've heard people, seen people telling me they're not upset, they're not angry, with their eyes are bulging out, their heads, their necks are turning red. I'm not angry, I'm just being clear. Okay, yeah, sure. 
about some opinion or another. You know, eyes are bulging. You know. Well, okay, whatever you call it, it's frightening. It's pretty threatening. <laughs> Then when it is uh, steady, then it's definitely uh, uh, something that contains the citta sankara, moderates it, and that's very much how it's expressed. And of course, the other way round, you know, through uh, determination, through patience, through acts of goodwill, you can draw your body up. It's tired, refresh it by a mental determination. And and these forest masters were very uh, talented, gifted, and well practiced in that, dealing with sickness, just using the power of the Dhamma in their minds to support and overcome the physical fatigue, distress, pain, malaria. So it works both ways. This gives a tremendous integrating uh, paradigm for practice. And we look at the path, whole, whole life path, you want integration, you want it so that where you live is a representation of Dhamma, is a field of Dhamma, is something where you walk into it, you think, oh, it calms you, it steadies you, it brightens you, it clarifies you, it doesn't confuse you. Where you live is a manifestation of it. How you operate, how you work with each other is a manifestation of practice. It's not something separate from it. And so these places then acquire a tremendous uh, teaching potential in their own right. Just by, just by being here in their own right. They're places that teach the Dhamma without a word being said, because they present it. And so then when we work in a place like this, it's that sense of you know, applying the mind to the service so that this does manifest, working with the impatience and the innumerable details that have to be dealt with working with conditions in an unconditioned way. No time limit, no deadline. Patience. Perseverance. No success. No failure. Just keep going. This is the calm and insight. Now if you look to refer back to say the Anapanasati Sutta, or in fact um, even the Satipatthana got similar modalities. You have these four uh, groups. First group associated with body, second group associated with what mental formations, feeling and perception. Third group associated with mind, fourth group associated with Dhamma's insight. And you know, when you look at it on a page, you imagine, oh, right, one, two, three, four, do the first, then the second, then the third, then the fourth. 
But it doesn't seem to work like that. Like if you look at the Four Noble Truths, you don't wait until you've had the cessation of suffering before you get a glimpse of the path. And the fourth truth begins when you get a sense of there is dukkha, uh-huh. You know, and it's caught and it's generated through this sense of self, which is the first noble truth, you know, attachment to the gandhas. That's right view. So, you know, the fourth truth begins with the first. So it's more like looking at the str- as different layers, strata. Which the fourth is the deep underlying stratum of experience, which kind of covers the rest. And the other three, you can coming through, you know, line up with that. So we contemplate, look in the Anapanasati Sutta, you have the four clusters of teachings. Fourth is about using terms like witnessing impermanence, witnessing dispassion, witnessing cessation, witnessing relinquishment. You think, well, where? Well, that's the that's the underlying motif that, rather like a thumb and three fingers, that works with the other three. So you contemplate body, as you're contemplating body, you become aware that body itself is already a process of changing phenomena. It doesn't take you long to see that. Dispassion, you can realise that the, it's just like this. Um, it's not fantastic, it's not terrible, it's just like this. And you, you always experience passion in the body and incline towards this passion because when you experience passion in the body, it is deeply unsettling and disturbing, disorienting, exhausting, so you incline towards dispassion. Ceasing, give up certain bodily activities, violence, uh, obviously, uh, abusive behaviour of very, very, many kinds. Certain patterns cease through bodily practice, relinquishment, relinquish a sense of identification with the body, doesn't mean, but still there's a body. Still there's a body, but so this relinquishment doesn't, and cessation doesn't mean you don't have one, or you want to get rid of it, or you dump it, but the relinquishment, the cessation of unskillful tendencies, bad karma, unskillful volitions, and the relinquishment of identification. Then there's a body, you know, which can serve. Perceptions and feelings, sankharas, recognizing these are also changeable perceptions. You might imagine we're here at Jithurst. Jitaviveka is what? Perception in the mind depends where you are. Whether standing in the house, it's a building project, standing in the gardens, it's a landscape, going to a finance meeting, it's a headache. (laughs) Coming into the door, it's a place of wonderful bounty, peace and 
offer an opportunity to make offerings. What is it? Is it a place, oh, you know, I've been here for 10 months already, I want to get out of here, is it a prison camp? Or is it, thank goodness I'm in here, not out there? Is it an oasis? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, guess what? <laughs> it's an impermanent condition, isn't it? It's a series of perceptions of phenomena. It doesn't mean there isn't a place called Chittavivaka. It doesn't mean it's useful. It's not a, not a dream, it's something we can use. But then we recognize our angles and attitudes and purify, clarify. Yeah. Vega is a place of Dhamma. Doesn't matter whether it's in West Sussex, Spain, Finland, it's a place of Dhamma. Oh yeah, that's where it is. That's what you need to know. You practice with it, you look at it like that, you respect it, you tidy it. So, yeah, that's what it is. That's about right. It's an impermanent perception, but then through seeing whatever attitudes one has are changeable, we look at it from a more dispassionate thing. Is it exactly, is it the way my visual aesthetic sense likes it or not? Doesn't really matter. (laughs) You know, uh, let go of the, this is my place. Go of that, that's the place of Dhamma. You can call it anything you like, really. And then there's that cleansing, and then you work, you can then use it. Jitivaka in April, there's a beautiful garden, delightful. February, miserable. (laughs) In some respects. So that, but then you've got something that's a reference point for purification and for practice. Same with your your own body, in your in your your mind, with its talents and its weak spots. It's a place of dumber. Doesn't have to be the best. We practice with it. It's not something to just try and hammer into shape or compare with somebody else's. It's conditioned. It's just this. And if it's a place of Dhamma, if it's, a, it's a, something we use as a Dhamma practice, we relate to as a Dhamma practice, as a room for many different kinds of mental formation. They abide in quality and they are free from harmfulness. And Chitta literally means the place or the chitta that's not entangled with defilements. That's the place to live. <laughs> and internally, externally. This passion towards its squalling, mumbling relinquishment of its fantasies and grudges and tribunals ceasing of that relinquishment of identification with it 
doesn't mean there isn't one, that you can't use it, but what has to be relinquished can be relinquished. And it's a, it's a functioning system. So you see how this uh, steadying, calming, insight, wisdom, working together. And it can reveal the nature of mind. It's uh, simplicity. It's uh, brightness. Something that you can rest in. Be refreshed by. And chitta itself, uh, it's... Uh, Conditions are, are laid. There's a place, a place, an occasion of restoration. You get faith. You know, there's something beautiful here for when the conditions pass. Mm. Such as when one dies. Mm. Willingness to let go of conditions that. And your death is a good one. Mm. Fearless. Most of us, if we get older, probably our mental apparatus, our conditioning processes, our thinking gets slower, memory fades, might get a bit senile. Forget things, you know. Nothing you can do about it, really. Just the aging process. Well, it doesn't have to be marbles aren't everything, you know. <laughs> you can lose a few and still feel okay. <laughs> There's one of our supporters, she had, uh, I think, dementia or something of that nature. She was in a care home and she'd been a brilliant PhD at Cambridge University, so she was smart. And all all that just gradually collapsed. Brilliant intellect collapsed over a few years. She, She couldn't string a sentence together. Couldn't put a sentence together. Didn't know what time it was, what day it was. The names are gone. You know, they went to visit her. Occasionally she was in a care home. She'd been practicing Dharma also for many, many years. And she was happy. And you'd come in and she'd light up with joy. You see the nun, she, the monks, his face was shining with joy. She just talked gibberish. But so the gibberish was happy gibberish. <laughs> and happy gibberish is better than nasty sense. Sometimes <laughs> being rationally unkind, but it's not a good happy gibberish. Well, she's all right then, in what really counts, in what you can have some say over. You can't have some say over your thinking capacity. You, you know, for many years we believe we can. We can. What happens when that goes? It's just the condition. Use it. Use it while you can. 
It's not an identity. You're not your thinking mind, you're not what you think about, you're not the ability to think. You're not the constructions of your thought, but you will be if you don't work with them. <laughs> and you will be with the sourness or the agitation or the fearfulness or the resentment. Be with the residual emotional underpinnings. Mm. So use your time, use your thinking, while you still can do it, to investigate, to look in, to question yourself, to be firm with yourself, to discipline yourself, to encourage yourself, to gladden yourself. Don't get bogged down in it. Being bogged down in thinking minds being worse than being stuck in a decrepit body. It won't do you as much harm. Decrepit body won't do you as much harm as a messed up thinking mind. This is why people kill themselves. We're the only creatures that do so. Because we think. (laughs) Other animals get their bodies get bashed up, but they don't kill themselves. So, because of our mind, thinking minds will kill us. They don't just think pointlessly and learn how to. We're dispassionate towards it, you know, and the volitions that it encourages check them. The casualness, the cutting corners, the dismissiveness, the opinionatedness, the ways we can caricature other people, you know? Then the thinking mind is connected to unwholesome volition. You go back to that. I'm a dumber person. That's not, that's not okay. Look into the insight into what it is that you're fighting with or disappointed by. That's a fantasy. And look at who you're trying to save. For many years, one's thinking mind, one's mind is bent on trying to support me, trying to make me happy. And there isn't a me to make happy, that's why it always fails. You know, 99% of people's actions are about trying to make themselves feel good, and there isn't one to feel good. We're supporting a phantom, which itself is a shadow, a series of shadows cast by what's not been seen through, a series of shadows cast by the force of ignorance of becoming a narrow, dingy cell that people decorate don't relinquish it and there's a graduating way it's not about hating yourself or smashing yourself but really seeing into the what this is formed by space distance time perceptions attitudes ownership dismissiveness laziness Compulsiveness. You don't have to get rid of a self, just get rid of the uncomfortable, look into them, clear them. Then there's no self to get rid of. And once they're 
there's body, there's mind, and something that's a source of beauty, joy, and liberation. And we look into a body, mental formations, mind itself, with this theme in mind. We shall look into that eye attuned to the sense of changeability, inconstancy. Look into it with the minds attuned to sensitive to passion and calming it. Look into it with a mind that's clear that what can be stopped, what unskillfulness can be relinquished and put aside, what can terminate. And feeling gladdened when some of these miserable phenomena have ceased arising. Feeling larger, freer from the cramp of ill will towards oneself or others. And then the relinquishment becomes possible because the jitta wants the freedom. And when we get a sense that some of these phenomena that have seemed so chained to can pass away, there's a deepening in faith and deepening in wisdom. This is how we practice. So, as the Buddha says, meditate because do not be lazy, do not neglect it, lest you regret it later. All that has been taught by a teacher out of compassion, I have taught. Do not let the occasion pass, lest you regret it later. So let's take some time to... Um, Reflect and consider and continue our practice.